1 Samuel chapter 16, we'll take, we'll begin in verse 14 to the end of the chapter. David meets Saul. That's what we're considering this evening. I hope I'm not overly confident, but I feel like I know this guy Saul so well. And uh, you may feel the same way. Um, Not that I'm overly confident that you know him too. And... uh, There are other characters in the scripture. You can, at a glance, you know them. We'll come to them, Absalom being being one of them. But this evening, as we look at Saul, I don't know how useful such a study is going to be because we're going to be talking about the evil spirits that are harassing him, and it is all his own doing. There are those people in life that we meet, and in the beginning, we have such hopes of a great relationship. So many good things to come out of it, especially with God as Christians. Only to find out that uh, you turn out to be enemies or potential enemies. And that is the story this evening because David's going to enter the court of of Saul thinking this is going to be just a wonderful time. And it it will turn out he will be fighting for his life. And uh, he had already stood before one great and good man. Samuel, and was anointed, and any, a man can be great and not good. History has many of such characters. I think Mark Twain was a, was a great man in his field. He wasn't a good man in that he was a blasphemer. Now David's going to stand before a man that's not so good and that is not so great. Psalm 10, verse 4, The wicked is proud in his countenance, does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts, and that's where Saul ends up. God is just an obstacle, something to overcome. God is something that godly people bring in, and you have to try to sidestep it to get what you want done. And those kind of people end up having God turning them over to their own passions, their own sin. Now we look at verse 14. But the spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit... From Yahweh troubled him. Will the writer, be it Samuel or other contributors, whoever put this together, this is deliberate. Verse 14 is connected to verse 13 where we read, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Well, again, verse 14 is in contrast to that. The spirit of Yahweh departs. From King Saul, after God had put so much into him, invested so much in this man. A question for Saul. How can God bless where God is not honored? Saul, you're not honoring God. I mean, if you were his friend, which he probably had no close friends. But if you were his friend and you say, Saul, how can God honor your life? Even though he's called you to such a great work, if you're not honoring him. At what point does God become insulted? He probably would just dismiss the question, wouldn't even care about it, and go on to do whatever he was going to do, because that's how chaps like him do business. Saul made it impossible for God to bless him. But you can't, you can't beat the Lord. There's just no way. No longer can God give Saul the victories and the successes that he already enjoyed. He had evidences of God blessing him on the battlefield. I mean, it doesn't get any more intense than that. One of the most 
dramatic experiences in, in, in humanity is combat. 1 Samuel 14, verse 48, And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered him. And in that section, he went on to tell about other exploits of Saul. But now that's all going away because God's spirit is departing from him. Now he becomes irrational, senseless, devilish. And Paul wrote to the Galatians, he says, Oh, senseless Galatians! They would not yet become devilish. Maybe they never did. We don't have any more of the story. But it would be the first step toward heightened demonic activity in human lives to be exposed to such righteous deeds of God only to end up spitting on them in practice, in fact, in deed. So Satan now will become the dominant influence in Saul's life. And anyone under the canopy of influence of Saul will suffer. Whatever he touches turns to pain. That's one of the great lessons of the Bible that's holding up before us, that when we walk away from such a consideration as this, be it in a in church sitting or in our private time, we walk away and those, those, these things get into our heads so that they stay with us through life as guardrails and opportunities to rescue others. Maybe you know a Saul. Maybe it's an early stage and you could still get to them. Or maybe they're in the advanced stages of this type of behavior and there's nothing you or God or anyone can do for them. So he lost his special benefit of having power with God, which again allowed him to subdue his enemies for the sake of the nation, which he was called to, he was called to this position for the people. And not only was there no longer any joy in his life, but there was darkness now. He wasn't just a sourpuss. That darkness was, if I can say it this way, flashing out. Darkness really doesn't move, does it? Light moves. Evil lurked, and therefore it matured in him. Again, this is the, these are the early stages. By the time we get to chapter 18, it, it just goes, it takes off down the runway, and he begins trying to kill a godly man for no other reason than he didn't like that the godly man was godly and God was blessing him. In Luke chapter 22, verse 3, we read, Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve. Here is Saul, numbered among those who had great opportunity by the hand of God, numbered among those anointed by great, the great Samuel, only for him to have Satan harass him and influence him to the point where Saul became a devil himself. So it only worsens for him. And poor Jonathan, his son, the crown prince, such a godly man, stuck with this father. Where could he go? Where could John, he has nothing he could do. He could not, and when, it, when things start getting really out of hand, he can't side with David. His, the culture, the society, the days that he lived in would not have permitted that, not without awful consequence. And so he went down with the ship. That's what happened to Jonathan. But he went up to heaven. In 1 Samuel chapter 18, we will read, Now Saul was afraid of David because Yahweh was with him, but had departed from Saul. And, and there it is again. Instead of going to God and saying, Lord, can I have some of this? 
he turns against those whom God has given himself to. Going so far as soliciting, employing, paying for the powers of Satan that all the Jews knew was satanic. To go to a witch and ask her the future was evil at its, on its highest level. And yet he does it. In fact, he was the one that outlawed the witches in the land to begin with. Deuteronomy, they sacrificed to demons, not to God. To gods they did not know. To new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had no respect for the fake gods around them. These Johnny-come-latelys that were being created by people, they had zero respect for. And the Jews were to carry that also in their hearts. There's zero re- tolerance and respect for fake gods. And then we, but, but Saul knew this. It was ingrained in him, as it would be, have been with all the Jews. 1 Samuel 28, 15. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me, bringing me up? We'll get to that whole story when we get to chapter 18. It's going to be exciting. Uh, but anyway... Now Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Okay, here's what you should do. First off, what you shouldn't have done is go to the witch. God wouldn't answer you, so you're going to sidestep God because you're going to get what you want for you. This is what made this man so evil. It wasn't, he didn't care what God wanted. He wanted what he wanted. He'd use God to do that if it would work. If it didn't work, well, we'll go to plan B. And we see Christians do this. These professed Christians, under pressure, they will turn. Uh, you know, working on another topical. I don't know if it'll happen, but I'm going to spill some of the beans. I've noticed that a lot of parents who become strong in the faith, end up being corrupted by their own children. They're whining and complaining about God and restrictions and holiness and righteousness and being separate from the world, and they complain and whine till the parents begin to say, oh, I see you have a good point. The only point they have is on their head. It's a horn growing. There is no point. They go off to the universities and they come back and they convert their parents to what? And we're supposed to be good with this. And they keep pecking and pecking and the parents don't shut them down. And they become converts. It is a perversity. A parent needs to learn to draw a line in the sand and say, as for me and my house, regardless of what the others in my house may do, as for me, I am not taking one step away from the Lord. As much as I love you, I will not turn on God. That kind of stuff elevates some children. And in time, hopefully, we'll draw the others back. But to appease them, it is perversity. And I've seen it over the years more times than I care to number. They'll even, sometimes a child will even go to a goofball church and then draw the parents off with them too. Such is life. It says a distressing spirit from Yahweh troubled him. A demon, a demonic spirit menaced Saul from, all, from what we can tell from the outside, not from the inside. He does not appear to be demonically possessed, but he is most definitely harassed. That does not mean he is saved. There is no scriptural evidence 
that a demon indwelt Saul. We know that they cannot dwell believers. There the Holy Spirit takes up residence. But we can be harassed by devils, and we can be harassed by people who have devils. We can be harassed by simply carnal people. We can be harassed by Christians who are kind of dimwits. <laughs> we can be harassed by ourselves because we're dimwits sometimes too. Well, you, you, not me, you, you understand that. The Holy Spirit, having withdrawn from Saul, left him without the necessary defenses a human being has to have. When, when Paul said, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he wasn't just suggesting this. I'll get to a quote from Colossians along these lines as we move through this chapter. There are several New Testament occasions where God turned over people who professed to be saved. He turned them over to the devil, to demons, for judgment, for correction, hopefully. Acts chapter 5. But when a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira with his wife sold a possession and kept back part of the proceeds... His wife, also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so we pause there. So, so Ananias and Sapphira said, we're going to sell this land. We're going to give all the money to the church. Then they get the money in their hands. Well, you know what? We're going to give half. But everybody's going to think we're, going to, you know, we're really these big-time big believers. But Peter, of course, now Peter has this discernment from the Holy Spirit. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? And the consequences were, were capital. And there the, the God in the fledgling stages of the church would not tolerate such behavior. And we like to remark, if God still struck liars in church dead, there'd be few people in churches. For a lot of reasons. One, we'd be too afraid to go <laughs> 1st <laughs> Timothy chapter 1 this charge I commit to you O son Timothy according to the prophecies previously made concerning you that by them you may wage the good warfare don't be distracted from that there are many wars out there but this is the good one the one for the gospel he continues having faith and a good conscience which some having rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck now Saul was this type Saul's conscience was eating at him at times, which would account for some of his outbursts of violence. There was more going on, but that was part of it. Paul, uh, probably not even thinking of Saul while he's writing this, is saying that uh, having faith and a, a good conscience, some have rejected concerning the faith, and they suffered shipwreck. There's a consequence for that. And he goes on, because it's spiritual now. It's not changing like baseball teams. You know, I used to be you know, a, 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 a Dodgers fan. But now I dodge that team, and I like this team. All right. Just want to see if you're awake. So, anyway, this is not like changing teams in the world. This is spiritual. And then Paul adds after the shipwork wreck comment, immediately after, he says, Of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. They cut him off, fine. No more prayers for you, no more attention. Let Satan have you because that's what you want. Okay, go with him. And maybe, maybe the hope of you realizing the folly of your decision, you come back. So he turns them over. 
He talks about widows who, who, who are in the faith and need to marry the younger ones. And he says, for some, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 now, have already turned aside after Satan. Well, he's seducing them. He's luring them away with something, using their flesh. So for Saul, henceforth, severe bouts of depression, irrationale, anger, violence, paranoia, delusion, full-blown delusion. This spirit, again, will flash out against David in an attempt to kill him. Either David was really that bad of a musician, which he was not, or Saul was that delusional. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 11, Saul cast the spear, for he said, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped his presence twice. It's a little, we don't, it's, it's either somewhere between 14 to 24 times Saul tried to kill David. Depends on how you count the events. And it just it's crazy. David doesn't know he's in for this. At the time, at this section here where the, they're discovering how depressed Saul is with this spirit, David's out in the field with the sheep. And life is, you know, not so bad there. Anyway, this spirit would initiate and aggravate Saul to the point of violence and these other actions that went with it. I suspect there may have been alcohol that helped trigger these things, though it's not explicitly stated. Or implied. But we know how people did business then. We know how they do business today. And that would not be outside of it. Not that alcohol is the culprit. But there are things that certainly aggravated the situation. And the settings that they were in, like Saul's tent in his court, uh, there would be, of course, those uh, opportunities to uh, have your cup filled with wine throughout the evening. Anyway, the world would diagnose Saul as a manic, depressive individual that was insane. God scoffs at that. God says, no, he has a demon messing with him, messing with his mind and his head. And you can't x-ray and find it. You can't take a blood test and discern it. It's there. You look at his actions. You listen to what he says. If it goes against what I say, both in action and word, You've got some serious problems. Again, that's the whole thing behind Ephesians 6. When Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he's not saying it's only Christians. He's saying humanity has to wrestle with these demonic forces, whether they know it or not, believe it or not. Satan doesn't ask, do you believe me? Because if you don't believe me, I'll leave you alone. He harasses everybody. He hates the believer and the unbeliever alike, although he hates the believer even more. So, with little remaining to prevent Satan from attacking everything that was godlike in this man and around this man, and that's what it comes down to. We'll find as we move through the, man, the life of Saul, anything connected with God, he went against. And that's just not normal. There's demonic activity there. This is, uh, was so in the final days of Judas Iscariot. God gave, Christ gave him years to get that corrected, and he didn't take it. This is the case in Romans chapter 1. Thrice, three times we hear Paul say, 
God also gave them up to uncleanness. God gave them up to vile passions. God gave them over to a debased mind. He gave them over. Fine, if this is what you want, here you go. We're looking at it in Washington, D.C. We have a whole house that's white, and God has given them over to their vile passions. A few doors down, there's a couple of other buildings where it's going on. The same thing is going on. I, I think, well, you know, when the Bible says, do not grow weary in doing good, it's saying, you know, Satan's going to try to give you battle fatigue where you get tired of resisting. This is why some of the parents just roll over to their kids. They get tired. This is why we see otherwise decent people in government have a stalwart stance against the absurd. Then the next thing you know, they're just drinking the Kool-Aid with everybody else. Who has got the nerve to stand and guard their bean field to the end? Those who have the word of God so attached to their hand that they can't let it go. And one of the great stories of the book of Kings and Chronicles. Question. God departs from the heart that he invested in. What is left? What happens? There's a vacancy there. There's a void. And the answer is this here again in verse 14. And a distressing spirit from Yahweh troubled him. That's what happens when God invests in you and you trample it. I don't mean struggle with it. David struggled with obedience. He struggled with obeying God from time to time. But he never, ever wanted it to be that way. If you could have just given him the power over the flesh that none of us have in full, David never would have committed those things. I mean, just read the 16th Psalm and you just get another insight into how this man thought, David, how he thought. Now you look at Saul's Psalm, oh wait, he doesn't have one. He's so disconnected from God who had time for him to sit down and, and express any passion for God. Well, anyway, the distressing spirit from the Lord. The Old Testament is notorious for presenting God's sovereignty in this way, that what God permits, he is often said to do. But it's not his will, his direct will. There's God's permissive will, there is his perfect will. His perfect will can't be touched. I don't care what you do, you're not going to pray to God to get him to keep the sun from rising the next day. That is his perfect will, and no anyone's going to do anything about that. But there are other things that God will just allow for various reasons. They're all over the board. And uh, this is one where he says, fine. And the reason why it's worded this way is to tell us God is sovereign. This is not a master stroke of Satan on Saul. God is in control. And these things will behave the way he permits them to behave for his divine purposes. It has to be this way if he is to extract from humanity... People who genuinely want him versus those who really can't be bothered or don't want him on his terms. Isaiah 64. So I will choose their delusions and bring their fears on them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not hear. But they did evil before my eyes and chose that which I do not delight. Who did this, God? The people that were claiming Yahweh as their God. They really weren't interested. I don't mean struggling. They just weren't interested. They say they were. And so 
those under the government of God, they are protected. And uh, Satan is not able to break free from his sovereignty, though he tries. And if he cannot break free from God's sovereignty, he will try to convince you that he can. And the result is confusion, perplexity. And where there is confusion, there is weakness. Colossians chapter 6. This is the verse in Colossians I wanted to connect to Ephesians chapter 6. This is Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. I think I said Colossians 6. For by him, that's Christ Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he controls them. It wasn't that he created them and then he lost control. He's using them for his purposes. God even allows his beloved to have face-to-face duels with Satan, satanic forces. What is Matthew chapter 4? The Spirit led Christ out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days by the tempter, by Satan. God's beloved son, attacked by Satan, but not seized and not defeated. Then there's Job and there's Joseph. God allowed those men to suffer. We cringe when we read those first two chapters of Job. And then there is Simon, Simon. Satan, he said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. That indeed is not to be dismissed. There's a force with that. He's saying, Peter, this is serious. I'm telling you what happened. Satan asked for you. I know because he's got to come through me. That he can sift you like they sift wheat. Yeah, toss you up in the air, see where, where you land, whether you're chaff or whether you're grain, whether you're good as fruit or to be burned as husk. So the Lord does let his people be tested, you and me alike. Um, Saul, as I mentioned, Judas Iscariot, they were not commandeered. They were, they were not hijacked. They offered themselves willingly. Because, again, they tasted the anointing and they spit it out. Those who love the Lord are shielded from this kind of stuff, though we have to deal with it. We're shielded from the defeat, from these elements. Matthew chapter 6, verse 13. This is an interesting one. I'll just do it this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Very, very clear. The address to that letter, you could say, is very clear. Our Father who who is in heaven. Jesus referred to God as um, his Father in heaven, righteous Father, uh, my Father. And here, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, your will be done. Well, this was Saul's kingdom, and God was not permitted in it. And then it goes on to say, your will be done. Uh, give us this day our daily bread. We've got to eat. We're going to fight. If we're going to stand against anything, we've got to eat. Uh, physically and spiritually alike. Give us this day our daily bread. And, and then he goes on to say, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Saul wasn't praying these kind of prayers. He wasn't praying any kind of prayers. So the man of... Stature is in distress. Samuel distanced himself 
from Saul. Why? Because God distanced himself from Saul. Samuel, as much as he loved Saul and didn't want it to go this way, he said, if God's not walking with you, there's two of us not walking with you. I'm not going with you anymore. All because Saul's uh, <clears throat> sin-filled heart. Self-serving pride resulted in his instability. This is the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar writes a, what we would call a whole chapter on this. How he had this dream. He called for Daniel. Daniel said, King, I wish this was for your enemies, but it's for you. They're going to drive you from men because you're going to go, woohoo, and, and then you'll come back. And then that happened. God warned him. Don't go around puffing yourself up. I don't want to hear any more of this pride. A man, especially in your position, this has got to be dealt with, Nebuchadnezzar. I'm giving you a chance. And he blew it. And the next thing you know, he's eating grass and his hair is growing long. And one reason why I keep my hair short, not to identify with Nebuchadnezzar. It's not entirely true. Not true at all, as a matter of fact. In other words, when God walks out, Satan walks in. When it's on this level. Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What was Nebuchadnezzar's sin? Self-serving pride. What, that, that drove him insane. And what is Saul's major sin? Self-serving pride. Self-exaltation. Excessive self-love. And the people looked at the height of Saul... And they missed the heart of David. But God's going to correct all that. And he's put it in print for us to read, to study, to meditate and examine. The Spirit came upon David, departed from Saul. Psalm 51. Let's, Psalm of David. This is after he made it terrible sins. Not one. A, a, a collection of serial, serial sins in a row. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not from your presence. Why didn't Saul say this? He did not have to be as articulate as David. He just had to say, God, I don't want to lose you. And God will decide how to control how far a man's evil will go. Proverbs, in the first chapter, we have this presentation of wisdom being sought for. And the consequences of not getting it. And the wisdom, of course, is that wisdom of having a relationship with God. The exercise of the, the proper use of knowledge, of holy knowledge. What do you do with it? You have a relationship with God. You begin to crave God. And you know as born-again Christians, you begin to crave God. And you crave the things that God wants. You side with Him. So much so that you begin to love the brethren even if they're not so lovable, which is an evidence of your salvation. I don't, as, you know, I, I'm not a people person. But I know I love the flock. Uh, that has to be God. Because prior to salvation, I would have been avoiding most of you. You, might, you would have been avoiding me too. I'm not, I'm not saying I'm special or anything. I'm just saying the evidences of the signatures of, of God's hands. Anyway, Proverbs chapter 1, we'll, we'll skip over so much leading up to this point. It's all good. He says, they would have none of my counsel and despise my every rebuke. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. Turn them over to Satan. You just turn them over to yourself. Just walk away. Because you don't want me. And I'm not going to allow you to play me for the fool. So the demon hounds of hell were hounding Saul. Prior to this. Prior. 
Well, look at that. I have it right open to Daniel chapter 6, 4. I could have read all of it to you. Uh, anyway, uh, that was not by accident. <laughs> like, you need to know that. Second Thessalonians, I'm reading this to, to establish my point that God restrained this evil spirit from the life of Saul and it reached a point where the restraint was withdrawn and that's when the floodgates opened up. You want to play with Ouija boards, you want to play with horoscopes and still claim you're a Christian, you may be setting yourself up for the Lord to turn you over to those spiritual things you're poking around with. He said, I don't believe that. Many a fool has said that and then found out too late. Thessalonians, Paul writes to these believers. He says, do you, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And how you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time? What is restraining the revelation of the Antichrist? If this is Antichrist, how will the world know when he comes forward? What is keeping him back? Well, the Holy Spirit. He says, for the mystery of lawlessness, as we see in Saul and so many others, already at work, only he, that's the Holy Spirit, who now restrains, will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then what happens? And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. It'll be no match. In other words, God will take care of this just with a blink and it's done. He's in total control. Continuing, he says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and fake wonders, lying wonders. He, then he continues, And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. It's all about receiving the truth. He says, for this reason, God will send strong delusion that they should believe the lie. And Saul was believing his own lie. Now we look at verse 15. Hey, we got one verse done. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Well, he's observing him and he's saying, this is not natural. This is heavy melancholy. I mean, this is not just I'm bummed out. This is going beyond that. Perhaps they hoped that maybe if we can bring a, you know, a musician in and he listens to some music, that uh, he'll come out of this and seek God. Maybe that was their hope. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Because the number one saint in Israel wanted nothing anymore to do with this king. A distressing spirit. I think part of it was a spirit of conviction. Saul knew his own guilt. And rather than, rather than, Repenting, he resented that he dared be corrected even by God. Maybe you felt that way. Maybe you have felt so justified in a complaint before God that you could feel welling up in you a defiant spirit. But because of the Holy Spirit, you check it. You put it in its place. It may flash out and you check it. And those that don't may suffer big consequences. And... We come to this question that is asked in the Robinson Caruso story by Friday to Caruso is, why doesn't God kill the devil? That would be nice. Well, he will eventually, as far as we're concerned. I don't, you know, they're going to be thrown into the abyss, the lake of fire, and, and there, that would be it for them. We won't ever see them again. I, I, I'd, I'd stand in line to see that. Well, anyway... 
Obedience is a test of love. And there are degrees of obedience. As we've been hitting on with David's life, when we get to 2 Samuel, God's going to say, before you get to thinking David is all of this, let me just show you that he's a human like everybody else, as much as I love him. And out of that, we're supposed to be emboldened in the faith. Otherwise, if obedience, well, well, obedience has to be measured in the presence of temptation. Otherwise, it's just a philosophy. It's a good idea. But, uh, or, you know, a figure of speech. How does obedience become something that's actually uh, meaningful to God and to me and harmful to the enemies of God? By standing in the face of temptation. God uses the devil to filter out of creation. Rebellious souls. The ones that he doesn't want in heaven because they don't really want to be under his authority. And so God uses Satan as an alternative choice between himself or not. And that's why God does not kill the devil. Satan does not show up in the first two chapters of the Bible. He doesn't show up in the last two chapters of the Bible. He's not in the beginning. He's not in the end. Because he's not the beginning and he is not the end. He's not the alpha. He's not the omega. And he is barred. He is, he is contained like the sea. The borders of Satan are fixed. And God knows what he's doing when he makes such lessons plain to us. Revelation 20. And anyone found... Written in the book of life. Oh, let me reread. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Where Antichrist and his sidekick will go, where Satan will go also. But God uses Satan. He uses him to judge sinners, to expose unbelievers, distinguish between believers and unbelievers, to refine the saints, to encourage the saints, as is the story of Job, to discipline those in the church, to purify believers in their quest to be obedient to God. Uh, God has his uses for Satan, and when we get to heaven, we're going to um, have not one complaint. God will wipe away every tear from our eye. I am so looking forward to that. And I won't have spectacles either. And I won't have sunglasses either. Because the Lord will be the light, and there will be no desire to filter that light out. So, it says here in verse 15, God is is troubling you. Again, what God permits, he is often said to do in the Old Testament because of his sovereignty. And this is the consequence of of a defiant, self-overly self-important spirit, which leads to uh, self-exaltation, which God will not stand for. Uh, was it too late for someone in this court to say, Saul, let's go to God? You know, people can get there. You can't even bring God up with some people. They'll go off. And they just, can we just, can I, can I, mind if I just pray for you? What do you mean pray for What are you doing? Oh, brother, if you've ever experienced that, you know that's just uh, not God's will. Anyway, um, verse 16, let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is, a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play, play it with his hand, and the distressing spirit from God is upon you, when it is upon you, and you shall be well. Well, this uh, is a spiritual ailment, and there's no physical treatment for this. You can buy a little time with a physical treatment, but it's going to fail. And that's what happened with Saul. It's sort of like losing your keys 
um, you know, outside in the dark and then going in the house and looking for them because that's where the light is. It's goofy. It sounds like it's going to work. Hey, let's go look where the light is. We can see things there. But <laughs> it's absurd. But the, uh, this is a, a standard practice with human beings. Uh, depression is not uncommon to sinners. Don't be surprised if you find yourself going through depression. Uh, I don't want to overplay the saying, but if you, I don't want to trivialize it, say deal with it, but that's what it's going to come down to in the end. You have to face it, look it in the face and deal with it and get sick of it and redirect your energies elsewhere. It doesn't mean you have an evil spirit because you, you deal with depression. It does mean that you, when you do have an evil spirit, there can be heightened forms of depression as we're considering here with Saul. But the key thing with Saul is he didn't want God. You have many other people, they want God. They fight depression, and, but, but they want God. And that's not the devil necessarily, just the flesh and the weakness of the flesh, of being born in a cursed world as a sinner under the curse. Anyway, 2 Corinthians 10, for we know this one, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal because the spiritual forces are not carnal. It is a case of fighting fire with fire. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. But then Paul also said earlier to the Corinthians, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Nor can he know them, because they're foolishness to him. He just doesn't buy it, because they're spiritually discerned. They don't have the Spirit. So you tell, you tell someone, listen, uh, this is a spiritual situation. If they're not a believer, they're, they're very likely going to scoff at that or believe in the world too and try to mingle it together, which we call leaven, spiritual conditions. Uh, if you are a Christian and you're dealing with a spiritual struggle, it may just be a long time that you have to deal with it. You'll come out of it if you, keep, you stay the course. Um, David wrote psalms about his. Why are you cast down my soul? We're going to come to that in some of that in a minute. Verse 17, so Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. <laughs> well, after it was suggested, look how it's worded. Saul said to his servants, after his servants were the ones that brought it up. I think it's on purpose. The writer says, this is typical Saul. He claims everything is his doing. It's all self-centered. He personifies the flesh, this man. So he outsources his solution. Hire somebody. Just don't ask me to go to God. Contrasting David, Psalm 61, David wrote, For the end of the earth, I will cry to you from the end of the earth. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. You know, you come to church, you sing songs like this to God. Psalm 3, verse 2, Many are they who say, to, say of me, there is no help for him in God. Selah. He said, there are people that try to take me away. And he goes on, verse 3, But you, O Yahweh, are a shield for me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. How many people have told you, oh, you can't go to God for that. I mean, there's some things you, you, you just as a rule you don't go to God for. You go to Tylenol. Granted. But spiritual problems. We go to God. And there are those that are going to scoff. And that's what David wrote about. There are those that tell me don't go to God. There's no help from him. Even the sons of Korah, their ancestor Korah was a rebel against Moses and the ground opened and swallowed him and his goods and his home up. But his offspring, we find them in the temple writing these beautiful psalms because of the mercy of God. God said, that was Korah. 
That's not you. There's nonsense about cyclical sin, you know. You just, oh, I'm in the cycle of sin, and I have an excuse to be evil because I'm on this cycle. Anyway, uh, Psalm 42, verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Yes, uh, the psalmist was depressed. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. I'm, I'm not sensing you, God. That's why I'm so thirsty for you. And how, how, many, how long do I cry on my bed? Day and night, I cry out for you. God says, I've got everyone down. And by faith, you're going to see what happens. Maybe not in this life. Maybe in this life. Verse 18. Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, a Bethlehemite, who is, a skillful, who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. And Yahweh is with him. Well, I'm glad he's not ugly. Because he never would. <laughs> why does he put a mighty man of value? He's really selling it. Uh, it's, it's not by accident that this courtier of Saul previously noticed David and his ability, his, his musical skills. This is God as it was with Joseph in Pharaoh's court. Remember the butler? Oh, by the way, I remember a few years back. Genesis 41, verse 12. Now there was a young Hebrew man with us there, a servant of the captain of the God, and we, uh, and we told him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each man he interpreted according to his own dream. Not by accident that that butler made it into the jail with Joseph and was one day used as a tool of God to get Joseph out. Although Joseph had to be saying, why does he not do it today? Why do I have to wait? It's because Joseph wanted out of that jail. Uh, these are heavy stories. Anyway, he continues in verse 18, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person. <laughs> so, this is so silly. What if he was ugly? I mean, seriously. What if, he, what if David was a cyclops? Would he have still <laughs> recommended him? The kind of guys you got in your court. Samuel would have never said anything like that. Anyway, what is meant by this mighty man of valor? When we hear valor, we think of someone who's been tested. Their bravery has been tested in, in the face of danger. Well, David has not, to anyone's knowledge at this point. Well, it, but it, it means he's healthy enough and old enough for military service. And then he pours it on a little thick with he's prudent in speech. He's just right for the court. You don't want dumb people around you saying stupid things. And this guy would be a good fit. That's what he's saying. David is probably late 15, 16 years old, trying to chart that back from when he was 30 years old, he became king. Uh, so that's where he, he is likely. And the Lord is with him in contrast to Saul and his melancholy that is engulfing him and will get worse. Again, he's in the early stages. And so the one without the Lord needed one with the Lord to help him, uh, to rescue him. And I think it is very sad when it's the other way around. It's very sad when believers go to the world to get rescued from themselves. Um, and uh, Unfortunately, in, in modern days, the church has helped believers do that. And instead of saying, uh, staying strong and the church has often been influenced out of the spirit and into the world. I mean, 
even how they put board members and select them and do other things, much of it is because they've been influenced by the world and not by the word. Verse 19, therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of funny how that's worded. Uh, well, here for the first time, the two names, Saul and David, find themselves in the same sentence. Uh, they are, if you, if you gather up all the references to Saul and David, the stories that go with their lives, and you put them side by side, side, by side you come away saying, David's a far better man. And uh, that is for us to feast on as Christians in the spirit. Verse 20, and Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. Jesse, his, his, his generosity is noticeable, part of his social skills. Later, he's going to send David to the battle line, not the fight, because there was no fight going on, where Goliath is strutting back and forth for 40 days, blaspheming, and David's brothers are there, and he sends him with dried grain and 10 loaves of bread and 10 cheeses to, uh, for his brothers, a care package. Uh, that's just Jesse. Earlier we saw him, well, we'll also see him, well, we see him here, sending uh, gifts. Don't go empty-handed. Make sure you take the entermans with you. <laughs> Verse 21. It used to be when you, when you were invited to someone's house for dinner, you'd, you'd bring something voluntarily. If they said, hey, could you bring that? Would, you know, that's tasteless. We don't do it like that. We just, I'll bring the entermans and everybody will be happy once they see those chocolate donuts. How can you be anything other than happy? Verse 20. So David came to Saul, stood before him, and he loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. Again, there's no way David can see what's coming, that this man will chase him. So where it says, and he, that is Saul, loved him, he loved uh, David. But, uh, well, David loved God. Saul loved Saul. He loves what David is doing for him. He likes the choice. Yeah, I see he's not an ugly person, whatever that may mean. And he's not a cyclops and he, he, he can handle himself. And so he's accepting him into the court. But uh, it is a useless kind of love. It's the kind of love you have for a snack. And it's brief, and it makes me happy, and then I move on. And I may want a different snack tomorrow night. Uh, this is the kind of love that, again, attempted to kill David over at least 16 times, and perhaps more. His obsession with murdering David and using his army to help him do it personifies what? What does that personify? As, as on a normal day, Saul personifies the flesh. But on a heightened day, he personifies hatred, sheer hatred. He was obsessed with killing David. He had nothing else to do. Here's a conversation with, with Saul. Let's go kill David. Hi, Saul, how are you? Let's go kill David. Saul, what time do you have? Let's go kill David. He was obsessed. And he would get every conversation to attack David in some way. Until he has a whole army slapping around with him. David could have killed him twice and did not. You would think that would be proof. You would think that would say everybody would say, you know what, David's a good guy. They don't. Um, anyway, well, not the story. We have, to, we have to read it. There's so much to it. And he, David, became his, that is Saul's armor bearer, 
And the armor bearers would be usually more than one attendants of the king. Uh, Saul was vaguely familiar with David uh, in the early stages. So much so after David drops the giant, Saul says, whose boy is this again? What family did he come from? I should have paid more attention to him. <laughs> yeah, wait till you see what happens. Uh, anyway, uh, verse 16 now. Uh, 22, sorry. <laughs> that was deja vu. <laughs> if we read it again, do you believe in deja vu? Do you believe in deja vu? <laughs> High school stuff. Then Saul sent to Jesse saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And no doubt the aide wrote this. Uh, but David's in for what, at least when I was in the military, they would use this phrase, it always proved to be true. You're in for a rude awakening. And, uh, you know, I never heard that before until then. What does it mean, a rude awakening? Well, it's not nice. It's not like a happy mom. Hey, come on, get up. Time, time for breakfast. Put your little booties on. And uh, it's not, that's not a rude awakening. But when you have to deal with something you didn't see coming, that's rude. Verse 23, and so it was whenever the Spirit of God was upon Saul that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Uh, does he have to say that? <laughs> I mean, what else... <laughs> if, he played, if he played it with his feet, I would have wanted to know that. But then Saul, <laughs> we better move on because I can feel it coming. Then Saul would become refreshed as well. <laughs> yeah, he's refreshed because he, <laughs> cause he used his hands, not his <laughs> feet. Hey, get your feet off of that. <laughs> <laughs> Can we go to a commercial? <laughs> so, okay. Um, <laughs> David played. <laughs> I haven't finished the verse. Then Saul would become refreshed as well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. So he played that music, and, and Saul was happy again, like a little boy. Uh, David played the liar to a liar, is really how it turns out. Uh, then Saul would become refreshed as well, and the spirit would depart from him. But he'll be back. This was a temporary fix. As I mentioned, it's going to fail. It's going to fail miserably. Anyone who had their hopes up high is going to have them all, well, to go have that rude awakening I was talking about. But again, it was his excessive self-love that created these conditions and his ruin. That when triggered, his jealousy triggered uh, an explosion that put everything on a completely different level. And this man is just a, a walking textbook of how not to be. And that's, I think, why God spends so much time with Saul. And there are other characters he could have done this with, with lessons, but Saul is the, the better choice, evidently. And <clears throat> this uh, this is the extended hand of God saying to Saul, I'm still trying to reach you. I have a godly lad here. He's singing these songs. We don't know if they're all godly. Some of them are probably folk songs about the harvest and things like that. And some of them are probably songs about God. And uh, God is trying to still minister to him. Matthew 26, 25 Judas, if you look at Jerusalem, if you stand in the Mount, at the Mount of Olives, 
and you look across at Jerusalem, you know it's quite a bit of a walk from the city gates up the hill, down the hill and up the hill uh, to get to uh, Gethsemane. So Judas had all that time to contemplate, to meditate his transgression. So that when he finally gets face to face with Jesus, who is waiting for them, we read Matthew 26, verse 50. But Jesus said to him, friend, why have you come? Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. What's the last thing that Jesus said to Judas? Called him a friend. He's giving him a chance still. Maybe you think Judas would walk away. Now, God knew he wouldn't, but God also knows others would read this and say, yes, this is the mercy of God. His betrayer is still treated with some level of decency, and I need to learn how to do some of this. And so by using music to escape conviction instead of facing the truth, and that's what's happening here, the victory over evil slipped away from Saul. I want to repeat that and we'll pray. Why, why did the victory slip away from Saul? Because he used the music to escape the conviction, the feeling of being wrong, instead of facing the truth. Imagine coming to the church and you're singing praises to God and you're singing about His holiness and righteousness, but you have no intention whatsoever of abiding by any of that. You just want to feel good about yourself. That's a step backwards. Great lesson. Let's pray. Our Father, again, the truths of your word triumph. They are appealing. They are effective. And we need these things if we're going to endure in the face of that which tries to wear us down, to just wear us out. May it not be so. May we be strong uh, beyond the finish line. May you get us all home safely. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.